Great to be here with you all this morning. Everyone doing okay? Good. So I want to start today with a question. When do you think children are first able to lie? The old answer was when they can talk. But actually it turns out to be earlier than that. There was this study done, and the study found that babies who cannot even talk, they learn to cry when they are not distressed because it will fake out their parents into giving them the attention that they want. And so you should know that when you fall for that, and I've fallen for that, when you go over and you hug those kids and pick them up, they are actually laughing at you in their six-month-old psychopathic souls. That's what's going on. And then as soon as children learn how to use words, they're capable of full-blown lying, and they do. It's been said that 72% of parenting, and I'm sure a lot of parents in this room can relate, 72% of parenting is asking kids how something got broken and then listening to them lie about it. Now, where do our little people learn to lie? And the answer is they learn it from big people. One of the most famous studies on deception found that the majority of adults lie two or three times in a 10-minute conversation. How about that? Now, I know that does not apply to anybody in the room here today, but for everybody else, it means that they lie about what they really said, they lie about their motives, they lie about why they're late, we cheat on our taxes or fudge, we puff up our resumes and call it good marketing, we lie to our spouses, we even lie to our kids, we even lie about lying to our children. Last June, we were with Cindy's folks and my folks over in France, we were all there together. Uh, and we rented a house down the road from Cindy's parents' house for my parents to stay in, and the house that they were staying in had a pool in the yard, and so, of course, the kids wanted to swim in the pool, and uh, so we did, and we were swimming there one afternoon, and Audrey says to me and my mother, we were there by the pool, she says, I need to go pee-pee. Well, the toilet was kind of on the other side of the yard, and I didn't want to take Audrey and walk all the way up to the toilet, so I said, and my mother corroborated, she said, just go in the pool. I said, just go in the pool. That's what chlorine's for anyway, right? And she did. The next day we were back at that pool, but this time the owner of the pool was out there at the pool. And once again, Audrey had to go to the bathroom, and she announced that she was going to go in the pool just like she did the day before. And what did we say? We said, Audrey, no, ma'am, you do not <laughs> urinate in the pool. You, she burst into tears. She did. She burst into tears. And she said, but you told me yesterday it was fine <laughs> to pee in the pool. To which my mother and I replied, what are you talking about? We said, no such thing. <laughs> it was a really confusing moment for Audrey. We got caught red-handed. Uh, and even though we've laughed about it since, I do feel sheepish about the whole incident, especially now because I'm worried none of you are going to invite us to your pools ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not the human condition? We want to be truthful, but we are prepared to lie if we think it's necessary. We want to be truthful, but we're prepared to lie if we think it's necessary. It's like the little boy in Sunday school once said, this is the boy who knew the Bible well. He said, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord, but a very present help in times of trouble. <laughs> there's lying all over our culture, all over our politics, and the media, and the fake news, and the people who fact-check the fake news. There's lying everywhere. Spin has become such a problem in our society that the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year just a few years ago was post-truth. That was the Word of the Year. But there's also lying in our lives. We lie to impress people. We lie to sell stuff. We lie to get stuff. We lie on Facebook. You don't really like that. Why'd you click you did? We lie at church. We lie about why we're not at church. Some people are maybe lying about that next time I see them this week. 
We lie to get out of trouble. And get this, one researcher found that the number one finding from her surveys on lying is that we lie about how much we lie. Bless our hearts. God, of course, knows about this sorry state of affairs. Very early in Jesus' ministry, you read about this in John chapter 2, we're told that Jesus did not trust people, did not trust us, because he knew about people. No one needed to tell Jesus about human nature. He knew what was in each person's heart. In other words, you can fool some people all the time, and you can fool all the people some of the time, but you can never fool Jesus. You can never fool Jesus. And here's the thing, this Jesus who can't be fooled has some serious stuff, really serious stuff to say about truthfulness. He says that truth-telling is a vital sign of spiritual health. And he says that in Matthew chapter 5. Let me read you his words again. He says, you've heard, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord all the vows that you've made. But I'm going to tell you something else. Don't swear an oath at all. Don't swear an oath by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, for that's the great city of the king. Rather, all you need to do is simply say yes or no and mean it. Now, if you're like me, you might hear those words, read those words, and you think to yourself, well, I've never sworn an oath oath by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, so I'm scoring pretty well on this teaching from Jesus. And then there's sometimes the case that people uh, take what Jesus said here in a really literalistic manner uh, as uh, some sort of prohibition against ever taking an oath. And so they won't serve in the army, they won't testify in court, they won't do anything that requires oath-taking. But here's the thing, that is not the point of this teaching of Jesus on truthfulness. This is from Matthew chapter 5. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about what true inner goodness, true spiritual health and vitality look like. And Jesus is contrasting everything that he's saying with conventional ideas about goodness and following God's law as they existed back in Israel at that time. And he's doing that to make the point. Now, to understand what Jesus is up to here, let's go back to little kids again. As I've said, we all lie, kids lie. Therefore, and because we all lie, therefore, what do I do when I have to make sure that you believe me? Because if you don't believe me, I might not be able to get you to do what I need you to do for me, what I think you have to do for me. That's why we lie. This is why kids invented something called a promise. I promise, I promise, I promise, I'm telling you the truth this time. In adults, we energetically sustain that tradition of promise-making. We even add variations of it to enhance our sincerity, to convince others of our sincerity. We say things like this, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye, which means you have to believe me now because if you don't, I'll be in a coffin with my needle in in an eye, and it's your fault because you didn't believe me. That's what we do. Every culture has lying, which is why pretty much every culture has oaths and vows and promises. But guess what? Oaths and promises actually give evidence of the fact that we lie. They're supposed to be a means of overcoming lying. That's why you make an oath, because you can't be trusted otherwise. In the ancient world, people made oaths on sacred things. They would say, may the gods deal severely with me if I'm not telling you the truth. And we still do that today, but we say things like, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on all that's holy, or I swear on this stack of Bibles. In ancient Israel, people were taught to make oaths but they were taught to make them in the name of the one true God. This is what you learn in Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy 6, 13 says this, Fear the Lord your God, serve only Him, and take your oaths in His name. And related to this, ancient Israelites would sometimes acknowledge God's presence with their body by raising a hand, for example. Abraham did that in Genesis. He raised his hand when he talked to the king of Sodom, and he said, With a raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord. 
And we still do things like that. You go into a courtroom to give testimony. You're going to raise one hand, put another hand on the Bible, and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Now, Jews didn't necessarily do that on God's name because it was sacred, and so they didn't want to use his name in that way, which is why, to what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, they would instead swear by heaven or Jerusalem or by the earth because they didn't want to swear on God's name. So that's the backdrop to the text today. And in this text, Jesus is going straight to the heart of the whole oath-taking system. He's going for the jugular. And what's wrong with that system? What's wrong is that it is premised on the fact that we don't tell the truth. A lot of times we don't tell the truth, which is why we end up using pressure or guilt or a song and a dance to impress people with our sincerity, to get them to do what we want. I promise, I promise, I promise. We all know this. Not too long ago, our kids had a squabble. I heard a howl upstairs, and so Cindy and I go upstairs, and we find all this commotion, and I said, pray tell, what is happening here? Because I've been reading Shakespeare in the living room downstairs. Pray tell, what is going on here? Hugo was crying. There was a bite mark on the back of his neck, and Audrey preemptively says, I didn't do anything. So I'm thinking to myself, what am I supposed to believe here? Um, That Hugo bit himself there? He's not a contortionist. (laughs) Now, by this point, Audrey's getting really worked up defending her innocence. She's got tears in her eyes, and she says, Roger, because that's what she calls me. She says, Roger, I don't make lies. And so I start feeling really guilty. How could I think this, my sweet little girl is lying to me? But then I realized what was going on, and I said, you do lie. Most of the time you tell the truth, but you can be a big, fat liar. And it's at that point that Cindy jumps in, and Cindy says, Audrey's been using that line on me a lot lately, so I'm so glad you didn't fall for it. And I say to Cindy, well, don't be too happy because you can be a little liar too. And she says to me, well, you're even a bigger liar. We had a really good conversation. (laughs) Jesus knows why we use oaths. I swear, I promise, it's the gospel truth. He knows that we're so desperate to get that other person to believe what we want them to believe so that they will do what we want them to do. And so instead of simply saying, here's the information, you've got the freedom to decide, instead of that, it's, I want to pressure you. I want to manipulate you. I want to try to override your judgment and your will in order to get what I want out of you. We're all spin doctors. We're all spin doctors. Here's something else that's important to know. While the Old Testament did permit oaths, as long as they were made in the name of God, It strongly condemns lying by the use of oaths, and that sometimes happens. The Old Testament treats oaths kind of like training wheels for a bicycle. The long game, of course, is not to be riding with training wheels when you're 40. The long game is to be done with those wheels, to become a person who doesn't need to make oaths because you are a truthful person. You have become a truthful person, so you don't need to make oaths and vows anymore. Of course, some people would miss that point, and in Jesus' time, some people did miss that point, and they would take that Old Testament guidance about oath-making, and they would twist it into legalism. As long as you keep the oath, then you're righteous. In other words, you could promise to perpetuate a lie and be commended for keeping that promise. You are one dependable liar. Good for you. But with Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming in a fresh and new and powerful way. And if you're going to live in that kingdom, and that's what we want to do here, We want to live in his kingdom. If you want to be spiritually vital, it's time to take those training wheels off. Let me put it like this. 
love, the type of love that we see in Jesus. Love means that I will honor you. I will honor your will and your judgment because I see your dignity and I respect your personhood. And so I won't try to pressure you. I don't deceive you. I don't manipulate you. Instead, it's simply, yes, it's like this or no, it's not like that. I honor your capacity to decide because I love you more than I want to have my own way because I have abandoned my way and my will to God's way and God's will. Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can tell somebody the truth without loving them, but you cannot love somebody without telling them the truth. Let me say that again. You can tell somebody the truth without loving them, but you cannot love people without telling them the truth. I was once told that the secret to being a truthful person is just to predecide ahead of time to resolve to tell the truth no matter what. Actually, that's not the secret. Something more than just resolve or determination is required for this aspect of spiritual health. So in closing, I want to introduce you to this, the true secret to becoming a truthful person. And I'm going to do this with attention to how it plays out in in an actual character from the Bible. By the way, if you've been feeling a little bit of guilt or shame up to this point about the subject of truthfulness, uh, you will be encouraged to know that the Bible is full of liars. Uh, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, even Moses, Rachel, King David, Samson, King Herod, Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts. The list could go on and on. Liars are all over the Bible. They're all over the church. We all struggle with this way. Yet perhaps the most eye-popping lie ever told, think of this like the Mount Everest of lies, comes from the man on whom Jesus said he was going to build his kingdom. That fisherman turned apostle, none other than St. Peter himself. There as he appears in the chosen. Now, as we heard from the first scripture, which Laurie read for us, the night before Jesus died, he warned his disciples that that they were going to disown him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. And how does Peter respond to this insulting prediction? He says, um, he says, and the Bible says this, it says, and Peter replied to Jesus, even if everybody else falls away on account of you, I will never do that. I will never fall away from you, Jesus. But Jesus pushes back to Peter. He says, actually, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows in the earliest morning, you, yes, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. You will fall away. You will not keep your word. Peter, of course, cannot fathom this possibility, and so he boldly declares, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. I think Peter was being completely sincere at this moment. I think his passion is unfeigned. I think his conviction is really earnest. He probably had tears in his eyes as he thought about maybe being a martyr for Jesus. We can get that way. We can be so convinced of our sincerity. This is Peter resolving, determining to tell the truth no matter what. Let's see how well that worked for him. A few hours later, Jesus is on trial to be crucified. Peter's not too far away. He's in a courtyard nearby. He's as close to Jesus as he dares to get in this moment. And in that courtyard, a girl sees Peter, and she says, Hey, weren't you part of Jesus' crew? I think you were. And how does Peter respond? Does he say, Yes, I was. That's not what he says. He says, I don't know what you mean. Notice he doesn't say, I never followed Jesus. His lie isn't that blunt. He just says, I don't know what you mean. And maybe in his mind, he'd convinced himself of that. Maybe he was thinking, I'm not really sure what she's saying. When you get good at lying, it's easy to start rationalizing. 
Here's a million-dollar question. How does Peter go from, I'm ready to die, to I'm ready to lie? Because that's what happens. And let me answer that question like this. The only foundation for life, lives of truthfulness, and listen up now, the only foundation for a life of truthfulness is to die to myself so that I can live in the care and safety of God. i got to trust that God is going to watch out for me no matter what happens. i got to trust that God is going to watch out for me no matter what happens. Because if I believe i got to watch out for myself and take care of myself, I'm going to keep lying as a tool to get what I want to get what I think I need to have to survive or to get by. And so it's only to the degree that I trust that there is a greater reality, it's called the kingdom of God, that I can let go of lying, that I can stop spinning, that I can stop manipulating, that I can quit being a person of deception. we got to bring that reality into our lives. we got to do that in big ways, and we got to do that in small ways. Think about what that would look like in your life. Let me give you an example from my life, a small example, an embarrassing example, but hey, it's my life. As some of you know, I like to shoot skeet, and I was doing this not too long ago for the first time in quite a while, and I was shooting rather poorly, and the numbers on the scorecard were afflicting my ego because my ego, like the ego of every other guy in this room, is fragile. The male ego is a fragile thing, and so those numbers were afflicting my ego, and I found myself pondering how I might edit that scorecard when nobody was looking. I was thinking that. And then in my mind, I had a, a higher thought. I remembered the basic prayer of life in God's kingdom, the prayer that says, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done right now, right here in my life. And so I started praying that prayer internally as I continued shooting. I know this sounds goofy, but this is how I try to roll. Now, at one point, we came to a pair on report. In the skeet at this particular station, they weren't even flying that quickly. And so I got up to shoot, and I, played, and I prayed, Lord, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Help me to let go of my ego. Help me to hit these skeet. Thy will be done. I missed both of them. <laughs> so I prayed again. Lord, thy will be done. Out come the second two. I missed both of them. Really, God, this is your will for me to embarrass me like this right now? That's how I felt inside. Now, I know that's trivial. Why would I be so attached to a number at a sport that I'm really rusty at? But this is often how we are. Sin causes us to fixate immensely on trivial desires. Our emotions get really attached to embarrassingly petty achievements and appearances, getting our way about stuff that we all know does not really matter, which is why it is so liberating to be at the skeet range with a success rate of less than 50%, and to know that Jesus still loves me. And to know that Jesus even still loves Matt, whose score was lower than mine, and my only consolation that day. <laughs> I don't have to live in shame or hiding or deceit. I can die to myself. I can die to my abysmal score. I can die to my ego. This is actually freedom and grace, and it's for everybody in the kingdom. You see, it's in the moments when we are tempted to deceive, to fudge, to spin, that we discover where we have not yet really died to ourselves, where we have not really come to fully and wholly trust in God. And so it is death to self, not resolving to never lie, but death to self that is the only foundation for lasting truthfulness. And that's what Peter is learning in our story today. Let's go back to that story for a second. A few minutes later, there's another encounter. 
When Peter went out to the entrance, this is what the scripture says, he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, hey, that man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Peter do? He denies once again his association with Jesus, and this time he does it with an oath. I don't know that man. I promise, I cross my heart. The first time Jesus denied his association with Jesus, it was more subtle, and now it's more explicit. And is that not how it works with lying? It gets easier the second time. But there's more. After a little while, the bystanders came up, and they said to Peter, certainly you are one of them. Your accent betrays you. You see, just like Jesus, Peter was from Galilee, and people from Galilee, kind of like people from Rock Hill, and especially people from Chester, they have an accent. And the inhabitants of big city Jerusalem thought of the Galileans as hicks. They were country bumpkins. Your accent's giving you away. You're a hillbilly, just like him. So the noose is tightening here. Peter's like a rat trapped in a corner, which is why he begins, as the Scripture says, to call down curses. He swore at them. He says, I don't know that man. In other words, what is the matter with you? Why won't you leave me alone? I swear on all that's sacred. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I don't follow him. And I am not going to die for him. And this is hard to believe, but the grammar in that verse actually suggests that Peter was not cursing himself, but cursing Jesus. God curse him. God strike him down. I don't know him. Peter has one God now, and it's called his own skin. And then a rooster crows. And Peter remembers what Jesus said a few hours earlier. You're going to disown me three times. And then this devastating line. Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. Yes, he did. And now he's outside. He's far away from Jesus. Lying can do that. I'm the one who was going to die for him. And this is what my devotion actually adds up to. Woe is me, for I am a man of deceitfulness. Maybe in this moment, Peter remembered Jesus' teaching from a while ago that said, you've heard what it says. Don't break your oath. Just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. And so we've got Peter who is a broken and sobbing wreck. But this isn't the end of Peter. At this point, I've got to tell you something, something simply amazing. There's something revolutionary, something otherworldly happening in this story. What we're doing is catching sight of this strange new world breaking in, a world where the tears of a backwoods fisherman can be the occasion for a new kingdom, a new world, a new way of life. A world breaking in, a world that's going to leave Pontius Pilate and King Herod as spent players on the ash heap of history. We're seeing right now the Beatitudes come to life. Blessed are those who mourn. Peter's learning to live in grace. We all got to learn that. It is in his greatest failure that he receives his greatest grace. After Jesus was crucified and resurrection, these women, they go to the tomb and they meet an angel at the tomb. And the angel says this, this is from Mark 16, 7. The angel says, go and tell all the disciples what you've seen and tell Peter. Why do those angels mention Peter specifically by name? They don't mention anyone else by name. What's being communicated is this. Hey, Peter, you big fat liar. You're not done. There's enough grace in this cross even for you. And there was. 
And it is that grace that ultimately made Peter a man of truthfulness. It's why he did eventually die for Christ. In the end, he did mean what he said. He was crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to be hung on a cross the same way that Jesus was. It's why he urges us in the New Testament with these words, I want you to put away all deceitfulness because he learned that. Not by resolve, but by grace. It is not our resolve, but the grace of God given to us, especially in our failures, in the face of our failures, that makes us truthful. Grace through which God says, I've got this, I've got everything, I've got you, I have got death, so quit fretting. And as you quit fretting, you will quit spinning, you will quit manipulating, and you will quit lying. Gang, what we're talking about here is access to real strength and power, a capacity for truthfulness that we could never just generate on our own. So let's pray for this power from God right now today. Let's get spiritually healthy in this sense. Living in truthfulness can really happen. I've crossed my heart. And I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.